Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you already knew that. You heard it in the introduction. Got a great show for you today. We're talking about meat. We're talking about the viability of smaller scale processing of meat. Because if you know anything, dear listener, you know that we had a big scare here this spring. Coronavirus came in and then all of a sudden you got employees at big meat processing facilities that are getting and testing positive shutting these places down so we had then the backup of hogs you've heard the story if you keep up with me you heard my the reasons for why this all happened and then the natural reaction then is could we help this problem could we alleviate or minimize this problem of supply chain crunches if we had more and smaller processors versus these facilities that have 800 employees and kill, you know, 5,000 pigs a day. So that's the discussion. And I've got a great guest. His name is Gary Dennis. He's with us from Oklahoma and he's a CPA. He's a rancher himself. And he also just ran the numbers and put a proposal together for a smaller scale meat processing facility. He's going to tell us all about that. But before he does, by the way, welcome, Gary. Thank you. Before we hear from you, before we hear from all of us, I've got to tell our listeners and our viewers, because yes, dear listener, it's not just an audio podcast that you can find on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast. You can also go on YouTube and type in Damian Mason channel. It is now a video, has been since January. So you can watch these fine videos. And also, you should remember that this podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. It's a software solution. Harvest Profit Ag. That's how you can find them on social media. It's a software solution that you can use in your agricultural enterprise to manage all the inputs and the outputs and the flows and the acreage and the, the things you got to manage. You know what? It's a complicated world. My CPA guest would understand that. And that's why we're encouraging you to check out harvestprofit.com to see what they can do for your operation in way of a software solution. Gary, thanks for being here. Thank you. I talked too much, but I had to to get the show kicked off. Let's tell me about you, and then we're going to talk about meat and smaller scale processing. Gary Dennis, guy from Oklahoma, went to Oklahoma State, a cowboy, loved the Oklahoma State Cowboys, loved being in still water. You know what you might do, though? You might go and straighten up that football team because I put a bet on the, on the Cowboys. They're playing Texas. Number six Oklahoma State is supposed to beat the crap out of the Texas Longhorns. I took them giving four. They got beat by seven. That's negative 11. I missed the spread. Thank you for nothing, Oklahoma State Cowboys. I'm going to absorb a $30 loss. It was a rough weekend for the Cowboys. I was, I was groaning on that one. All right. So you went to Oklahoma State, and then you, uh, and then you, you got yourself educated, and then you even went to Virginia Tech and got yourself educated some more. You're an ag econ guy that also then had a focus in accounting, and you are a CPA. So the hats that you wear, you're a CPA specializing in doing the books for farms and ranches. You have a ranch yourself and do beef. And then you also got this other thing we're going to talk about. So the point I'm making is our listeners and viewers know, you know about numbers and you know about beef, right? 
Absolutely. All right. So what did I miss there? Uh, tell me about the CPA business. Then we're going to talk about the ranching business. You bet. So the CPA business really started about two years ago for me. Um, I've been in the business more as an auditor for years with Ernst & Young out of the Tulsa office and then worked in private accounting for Coke Resources and also for ConocoPhillips and then ended up working for a small CPA firm here in Bartlesville and broke out on my own about two and my background to help farmers ranchers is really perfect and there are just not a lot of CPAs that understand uh, farming and ranching and understand the operations and really can I say talk the lingo with farmers and ranchers. Part of my business that I've done for 18 to 20 plus years has helped service farm service agency loans. And that's a big thing in Oklahoma, not so big in other states, but we've got a lot of loans with producers through the farm service agency. And so I've seen operations from one end of the state to the other in a lot of different operations, cow, calf, stalker, grains, row crops, to chicken houses, um, just some very odd stuff. But that's allowed me to really broaden my knowledge of different operations in the state from a very small level to a very large level, depending on the producer and what they're doing. All right. <clears throat> you came at it from an agricultural background, so you sort of knew the business, and then you you said, this is a, something I can, I can work with these people on, because there's some nuances of ag stuff uh, that some people don't fully, uh, you know, your average CPA maybe wouldn't get. And then you said, all right, uh, I, I can do this. So you're doing that. Then you've also got a beef operation that you run with your wife and you've got some crazy number, like seven kids or something. Is that what I'm hearing? That is seven kids. So my wife and I got married in 2003 and we never really talked about kids. And so you either end up with one or seven or maybe more, but seven's the magic number for us. Okay. Seven kids in 17 years. That's good. You're getting after it. I'm one of nine, youngest of nine, and the first eight were born in 10 years, then a five-and-a-half-year law, and then me as the accident. So I can, I can understand all that. Talk about your cattle operation. We're a, a small herd, about 150 mama cows, and we've got mainly commercial cattle, red Angus, Angus, crossed with Hereford, and we've got a small registered red Angus herd that, that we mainly used uh, for show cattle. So we're trying to raise a few show calves for them to show and, and be productive with. Um, but all the kids are involved in the operation, mainly the boys right now. Um, the girls some, but three of the girls are younger, and the oldest one is in gymnastics, and that pretty much uh, encompasses all of her time. So the boys are more pretty involved with me. You told me a story, which is one of the reasons I wanted, because we're really, we're going to talk about meat. And what we're going to talk about is opportunities to make money on meat. And, and is there room for uh, the non-commodity, non-large scale stuff? So you, you know, you're a younger guy and you're sitting there, um, you and your wife and said, well, you're from a ranching background, right? So you knew that, you knew the, the thing about, uh, you know how to, how to do it. He said, all right, I'm going to have a ranch and I'm going to have cattle. Uh, and the ones that aren't good enough to go to be show animals, I'm going to sell them. Tell me how you came up with how that was going to work so you could make money. What I really did was we obviously grew up eating beef and you know it's a better quality or feel like it's better quality for sure. So when I, we decided to sell beef, 
I really just went to the grocery store and looked at every cut of meat that you normally get from a beef animal. That's a normal cut, not some of the more specialty or trendy cuts that they've put together today and put all those prices on paper and how many, and looked at the Angus cut chart and said, okay, how many pounds are we getting of roast steaks? What kind of steaks? Uh, ground burger and work backwards to come up with a price. Mm-hmm. So that's how we arrived at our price that we do today. And we do something a little bit different than a lot of people. We actually sell a live animal to a producer and don't sell by a hanging weight. And the reason for that is because we sell um, in Oklahoma, in Kansas, down in Texas, Georgia, and Tennessee. So we sell our customers a live animal. We have it processed where they would like. And if if I do take it to them, and a lot of -of out-of-state customers I do, I'm simply a delivery driver at that point. You're saying that you're okay. It's like for me, cause I've had the, my hobby beef in uh, operation for 13 years here or so. And I get a place lined up down the road to kind of place that, you know, butchers a dozen uh, steers and maybe a half dozen hogs per week. Uh, and uh, I say, okay, customer, I'm going to give you one fourth of the steer number 123. And um, that's kind of how we do the thing. You're telling me uh, then, then they just go and pick up their one fourth, one half of a beef. You're saying you don't do that. You tell them, where do you want it? And then probably some of them say, uh, Joe's Butcher down the street here. Is that what they do? Most of the time, we have a processor lined up. 99.9% of the time, the processor's lined up. Because that is what they're buying the beef for. They want to eat. But we like to sell them a live animal, so you kind of circumvent the USDA inspection rules that you have to have. I see. You say, okay, steer number 123 just got loaded on the trailer. Uh, we ran him across the scale. He's 1,265 pounds, and uh, boom, there, there you go, and then you take it down for him. So that's how you move yours. Do you move almost all of yours that way, or you still have to go to a sale barn? We move almost everything that way now. That's where we're really geared towards with that and replacements. So in the next year or two, we'll have very little cattle run through the sale barn anymore. What we'll really focus on is feeding out beef and then selling replacement females that we don't keep in our own herd. Mm-hmm. We've worked a long time to get a herd that's really young and that's viable. And the only calls we have are generally cows that are 14 years or older. Okay. Everything's really young. Okay. And this is the second podcast in a row where we've talked about call cows. It dawns on me that for people that are not raised in the livestock business, remember I might have a cranberry producer that's listening to this or my friends in the suburbs. What's a call cow, uh, Gary? Call cow can be any age. Typically it's an older cow that has kind of met its longevity as far as being a good calf producer. It may still raise a calf, but a cow that doesn't raise a calf that's putting on pounds like you want it, just because of its age um, is typically referred to as a call cow. So we're going to go to town and, and go to slaughter. Anyway, call them from the herd. Okay. So um, let's talk then about you have obviously always looked at it as I'm not going to just raise animals and take market price because uh, sometimes you don't make a lot of money doing that. So you said, I'm going to go straight to consumers. So you're very familiar with the idea of raising the beef for the consumer and everybody does. It's just that many of the people that are in our business think they raise beef for that extra two tenths of a pound. In other words, they lose sight of that. It's going to be, 
to a consumer because they just get caught up in the production and the efficiencies and all that. So you've always had a real feel for what the consumer is doing and, and that's your marketplace. You're sitting there recently, uh, some grant money is announced, sort of the coronavirus thing. I want you to explain that. And someone comes to you and says, I think that we need to open up a smaller scale processing plant for uh, meat processing. Take me from the beginning. Well, I've got uh, through the grapevine, I heard of an individual that was wanting to do this and I made a phone call to him and he said, yeah, this is what I'm thinking. I'd like to open a processing facility and, but I want it to be larger than a mom and pop. I want it to initially be a coal, coal cow and bull facility to process coal cows and bulls, but I also want to process fat cattle too. And there might be a custom processing aspect. So in other words, a producer like me brings in yep. one to five or however many head you're going to bring in a year or 50 or even a hundred and get those processed and fabricated the way the customer wants. But initially, um, he wanted a, a coal cow and bull facility set up. So I started putting together some spreadsheets um, and looking at some analysis. And during that time, this grant money as part of the CARES Act came out. And so there, there was $10 million awarded to the state of Oklahoma through ODAF, the Oklahoma Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Food Service uh, for different processors in the state or new processors that came about. So those grant applications were due August 14th and that kind of put a crunch on, let's get this finished up and put together. And oh, by the way, this can also be um, the down payment or the equity that we need, what should we be awarded um, a grant for this processing facility? Okay. So this is a connection you've got, and you said we can do this. And uh, let's say you don't get this grant. Let's say that that's not what's going to happen. Does it make sense? Can you can you make it make sense? You're a CPA. Can I do this even if I just do it with my own money or invested money or borrowed money? I think you can. And that was based on my analysis and talking to different professors Although university professors sometimes are more uh, not quite as supportive as you want them to be, they look at things differently. I look at things from a more business-minded perspective versus maybe a scholar perspective. Wait, you're saying that, now I'm, I'm going to get this straight here. You're saying that university professors aren't entrepreneurial? They, they all of them. Oh, that's interesting. Hey, we're going to get into this more, but I just looked up at the clock and realized it's time for a couple of things. First off, to remind you that Harvest Profit is a, a sponsor of this show. Harvest Profit is a software solution for your agricultural enterprise, a company started by Nick Horeb up in Fargo, North, North Dakota, but it doesn't matter where he is. You can use their product no matter where you are. If you need a software solution for your agricultural enterprise, go to harvestprofit.com. Also, I should remind you that it's time for a Milk Minute. That's right. My new project that I'm doing is working with the Georgia Dairy Farmers. The Family Dairy Farms of Georgia have given me a contract to help them move milk forward. So I started a company called Milk Forward, and I'm working with them to promote their fine product. So here's your milk moment. First off, grab yourself a glass of milk take a little chug of milk, have some milk and cookies. It's good for you. 
And speaking of being good for you, just something I pulled up today because I was just doing a little research. Do you know that milk is the top source of calcium in Americans' diets? And it's a good source of calcium, but it's also a very efficient way to get calcium. You need calcium to have healthy teeth and bones, right? You, you need calcium. You can drink one cup of milk and get as much calcium as seven cups of broccoli. And there's people that think broccoli is good for you, has good calcium. You know what? Just drink a glass of milk. Broccoli kind of smells anyway, right? Just drink a glass of milk. All right. Erie, um, you're sitting there saying, okay, university people have done these studies, but we think there's a demand. We know that a whole bunch of semi-loads go to uh, national beef out in Dodge City, Kansas, and a whole bunch of, uh, you know, meat animals get butchered at these huge facilities. There's four big meat companies that dominate meat processing, JBS, Tyson, Cargill, and Smithfield, right? Yes. And then you're saying, but there's an opportunity out here to be a tier two kind of a place where we don't do that. So you came up with this. Who came up with the numbers? Like who said, here's the right size? You? We both came up with the numbers. And I don't know that there's a right size because you've got small mom and pops and you've got these large, large players. The large players aren't going to service somebody like myself, even somebody twice as big as myself, three times as big as myself. They're going to service somebody a lot larger. Smaller mom and pops can barely keep up with someone like me plus all their other businesses. Yeah, now that, that's probably a good stopping point, not stopping point, explanation point. Again, remembering that the people that listen to our thing, they come from all different manners of agriculture. So they're probably saying, what's this Damien talking about? Man, I go to Winn-Dixie and, and I get my uh, meat there. So here's the way it works. A guy like me that has a hobby beef operation, I've got my friends in town that say, I want to buy a half of a steer. And I say, okay, October 27th, I've got steers. Uh, they're gonna go to the butcher place down the road butcher place down the road has been there for a long time. They do about a dozen steers a week and maybe a dozen hogs. And for people like me, it's called custom butchering. They may or may not be able to sell it for retail because that's the other thing about different USDA inspections, right? Right. And then the stuff that our consumer goes and buys at Kroger, tell them how that goes to market. Because I already explained this local custom butchering for somebody like me and my customers. Let's say you are the person that goes to Kroger and buys a steer or a, a package of meat. Tell them how that comes about. Typically, it's it starts from a producer just like myself, someone smaller, someone larger. And they raise their animals up to a certain weight and they sell those into an open market. In that open market, there may be another producer that buys those at, say, three or 400 pounds, and they raise those to, let's say, seven to 850 or 900 pounds. And then at that point, those are typically bought by another individual, um, usually that goes to a feed yard at that time. And the feed yard typically feeds those beef for a period of time, and that may be from 90 days all the way up to it could be 200 days depending on the size of the beef when it came in and the market per se when it's leaving what's and, advantageous for them 
And uh, if you're listening to this and you are, this is new to you, a feed yard, first off, the environmental people love to reference feed yards. Kamala Harris thinks we should have limits on red meat consumption and they talk about these kinds of things. And this is where you've heard the, the, oh, the evil feed yard, because <laughs> there might be how many uh, heads of beef being fed at these feed yards? Small feed yards, 3,000, mm-hmm. and it goes up from there. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've driven by the ones that have 50,000. So there's, that's, that's that. And then those animals get to the certain weight, the butcher weight, let's call it on average, what, 1350, maybe something like that. I think it's even greater now. I think the average 10 years ago might've been 1300 pounds, but I think it's getting above that now. I think you might, your average may be close to the 1400. Okay, so they take an animal that's 1,400 pounds, they load it onto a trailer, and it goes to these massive uh, butchering facilities from those feed yards. It's uh, extremely commoditized production. That's what it is. Now, it's not saying it's bad. It's not saying it's not quality. It's, it could be very good quality. It's just that it's become a very large-scale operation. There's five semis a day that pull out of these feed yards and go to big processing plants. Am I right? Five semis are a lot more depending on the processing facility. If it's a facility that processes 6,000 animals per day and your semi is only going to hold 50 to 55 head of those large animals or maybe even 47 head, that's a lot of semis coming into one processing facility. And if it's hogs, that processing facility could handle 30,000 head a day. Right. So as the person listening now probably can understand, there's a big space in the middle. The space in the middle that's not 10 semis of animals a day, and it's also bigger than seven or 12 steers from Damian Mason uh, down the road. That's where we're shooting for the middle. You said there's an opportunity for this to make money. Who's the customer? How does it work? We know that there's these two other ends, one in the middle that's smaller, but still not mom and pop. How's it work? I think you still have to, when you're a small facility, and we're going to say this tier two facility, and we're going to call that processing 100 head to maybe 200 head per week. So you're going to average somewhere in there to 600 to 800 head per month. That's a small facility your customer is still the end user. In a facility this size, what it allows you to do from an economic standpoint is you've increased, let's call it floor space, so hanging space. So just like in a grocery store, you've got all this floor space. That's exactly what you need for hanging beef because your beef is hung, your premium beef is hung for a minimum of 14 days and that's a bare minimum and then it goes down from there and what hanging does for the audience is it increases uh, the tenderness of the beef and adds that some of that flavor so that aging process now i'm not an expert on aging but that's really what it does and why you want to hang those one of the knocks on uh, on grocery store meat even if it's choice um you know even if it's a graded choice I worked for a beef organization a couple of years ago, and uh, we talked about that. It generally only hangs at the large-scale production facilities for how long? I'm going to guess seven to ten days. Actually, I was told about three. Um, that That is why then you do have a little less flavor or a little less tenderness sometimes with uh, – 
grocery store cut versus what you're talking about. So these places that you're talking about are going to require space. They're going to differentiate themselves a little bit, uh, at least in your view, by making a better product by letting it hang longer. But then, of course, that takes up space. Um, what else do they do? What, what, what else differentiates them? Biggest thing that I think was differentiating in, in the uh, uh, application that I put together is you, it was fluid enough to really hang about 600 carcasses in the space that we had or were going for. And then you also had that same amount of floor space for the fabricated cuts. And a processor of that size can really work with a cons customer like me that has 150 head or 300 mama cows or maybe even up to 500 mama cows and say, we want to custom feed beef and we want to either brand our own beef or you can add like a co-op program between different producers and have a co-op branded beef program. And then you've got certain stipulations that, that you have to have to be part of that, whether it be the type and kind of cattle, what you feed them, how long you feed them, do you or do you not use hormones? Do you or do you, or do you not use um, some type of steroids or antibiotics in your feed? Or, you know, those different regulations you can look at as a co-op or as a producer itself and market your beef. But the, the, size, of the, the size of the facility that we were advocating for allowed for that. Whereas your small mom and pops that are killing 12 head, they don't have that floor space to do that. It's not that they're not willing to do that, they don't have the floor space or the size to do that. Are we supposed to say harvested, not killed? Are we supposed to say harvested? Well, let's be real and just call it killed. Yeah, well, we, we, you and I can say that. And after all, it's the business of ag. So these people understand that uh, you can call it harvesting, but you know what? Uh, before you can eat a steer, you got to kill it. Okay, so what we got then going on is, yeah, I agree with you that I think the opportunity is you've got – you're, you're of scale, but you're going to have to be just a little different crinkle than the big maker processors. So like you said, it could be that they get contracted with a cooperative. You and five of your neighbors say, uh, we're the Northeast Oklahoma uh, beef cooperative, and uh, here's what we pledge. No steroids, no uh, artificial growth hormones, and uh, our cattle are, you know, whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> humanely treated or whatever that kind of differentiation is, that's where the thing can, uh, can fit uh, because they're not going to be able to just, um, they're going to get shut out from the bigs. All of a sudden Kroger's not going to do business with a place that slaughters one-tenth as much as the main big places do, right? That's correct. The, and the bigs will squeeze you out most likely in that. And that's a barrier. That, that's a, market barrier, entry to market, a barrier to entry, mark, entry marketing, yeah. my words, but they are there. Yeah. Kroger's is probably not going to do business with you, but so there's, I think there's opportunities for more online marketing. Um, you know, you have different pop-up restaurants where you can have the same thing with a mobile unit where you're selling beef. You see it all the time in Oklahoma, shrimp on the Gulf coast. 
Right. Yeah, you could do that. And also a smaller processing facility could also then uh, differentiate the whole local thing. It could be that the restaurants that are within a 50 mile radius, they they're selling to or even independent grocers or even a higher end grocer. If you if your product is to do that, then all of a sudden the higher end meat shops, whatever, not to mention on site, but it'd be hard to get rid of that much just at an on site place. What's the pitfalls? What's the problem? Why? Why? Why aren't we doing more of these? Because I've wondered about it. I've thought about uh, trying to get in on one of these and, and I see a need for it. Right now, the smaller facilities are overwhelmed because everybody got crazy. Uh, they saw some meat shortages and man, oh man, everybody and her sister wants uh, to have uh, meat in the freezer now. So talk to me. Yeah, my, my, my cut dates right now are booked a year out and every processor that I know is booked at least a year out. Um, so there, I think there is a need for these smaller processors and and that's that was kind of one of my questions. And I really, as I put together this grant application, I was a little doubtful at first, is this really gonna make money? Because there's no one that exists this size. Even the university professors that we worked with were having a hard time saying, here, we don't really have any data for you to help you out and put these numbers. So again, what I did is I relied on my own knowledge of local processors, how much are you processing, what's that costing me, and work backwards into a larger facility. But why aren't people doing that? And I think it's a lot of because it's the quote, unknown. They don't know if it's gonna make money, no one's ever done it, and you've gotta think a little bit outside the box because you're not a small mom and pop and you're not a big. So that gives you opportunities. And I think the crisis that we all experienced, you know, from March, even up until now and looking forward, there's an opportunity there to make money. Just like more people are working from home right now, more people are probably willing to buy beef that they feel comfortable knowing how it's raised and how it's fed. And then once they get it, if that quality meets those expectations that you're putting out there and selling to them, that opportunity is there greater than what it was before this. I think there is a need there and it allows smaller producers to come into a end retail user and make a difference there. Because, you know, if you're a feed yard and you're selling your cattle to the bigs that are processing it, like you said, there's only four big ones. So there is some price control, whereas these smaller ones You've got an op- you've got another outlet for your product, yeah. even from a smaller producer that says, "I want to feed some animals out versus sell a young calf." Looking at the future, I mean, obviously you're a CPA, so you probably have to sit there with your clients and your own business and do a little projecting because uh, you know to be successful next year, next decade, you got to at least look forward. Will we see these? Because, like you said, there's not they don't exist right now. There's no place that does. 500, uh, you know, beef a, a, a month. And it's because clearly that it seems like we've got the two, you know, the two spectrums and that's it. Are we going to see these? I think so. I don't know when that is, but I think somebody or some group of somebody's is going to come together and say, let's do this and we're going to roll the dice and gamble. And if they have the right marketing people and the right salespeople and they're smart enough to think outside the box and look at lessons learned from the bigs and from the smalls, 
and not ignore their customer, which is the end user. That's their customer. The people they're buying beef from is not their customer. It's the end user. And look at what they want. There's an opportunity to make money there for sure. Yeah, I, I think there is, and it's going to have to be of some level of specialization. And it could be that they, you know, we we're doing really well selling uh, whatever you know, uh, background traced um, uh, or you know, source origin sourced grass fed. And then that's all we're going to process. In other words, I see the processor, not just that it's a certain size being what specializes it. I think it's going to have to be the product. Like you said, a branded product done between some cooperative, you know, maybe you and five of your buddies team up or a, or a, uh, a method of raising it. That might be the way that it goes. Like we only do organic grass fed and that, it was something like that is one. I'm wondering if that's where the thing, uh, in other words, it becomes almost like vertical integration, Gary, but of a specialty thing, not vertical integration like we normally think of, but it's going to be vertical integration from grass-fed cooperative guys like you that do it all the way up. It allows the smaller producers to become vertically integrated or a group of producers to become vertically integrated, whereas by themselves, they may or may not have that capital to actually do that or the knowledge or the know-how. And... Um, so I see those coming. I think you see a lot of trends going back to, and you, you've seen this since over oh, the last 12 to 13 years, consumers want to know more of where the product comes from, how it's raised, and, and for whatever reason, that's important to them. And so for my end retail uh, consumers, that's the biggest thing that concerns them is where's the product come from, how's it raised, how's it fed, what are you putting into the product? And by the way, I want it really high quality. And when you can meet all those needs, all of a sudden you get a really happy customer that is just a repeat customer over and over. I still sell beef to my very first customer 16 years ago. Yeah, good for you. I discovered as long as the product was good and they and they uh, could come pull in the driveway, it didn't hurt that I had a keg grater in my beef in my beef office. Sometimes the customers <laughs> liked to come by for that reason, but they also sometimes would bring their kids out and take a look at the, the steers in the field. Uh, what else am I not thinking of? What else did we not cover about the trend to um, maybe a a smaller meat processing thing? What else did, did you come here to say that I didn't ask? Now, one of the, the barriers to entry is your wastewater management, your inspections. Those type of things can be daunting, I think. And I won't, I'm not going to say I'm an expert in any of that because I'm not. Mm -hmm. That is something that you have to deal with. A small processor is going to have to deal with. And it's bigger than a mom and pop because 150 head compared to 12 head a week is a large difference. If you're going to use and I've heard numbers of six ga 600 gallons of water per animal. I don't think it's that big personally. I think it's more probably 200 to 350. Yeah. That's a lot of water per animal that you're using, and that water's got to go somewhere. Um, and then, of course, all of your, your, you know, your, your guts, your hides, your, all your byproducts that aren't sitting in the store that you're going to consume as a consumer what do you do with those? And so you've got to understand and, and have a plan for those as well. And if you have that plan, then that that's one of those
barriers that can be overcome and dealt with, but it's, it's just not going to magically go away or happen. You've got to have that plan from the start. And, and I think that's a lot of the reason why you don't see these type of processors here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, under yeah. the radar. Because yeah, the environmental regulations and then the, uh, yeah, it, it does favor scale. You, you know, there's, 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 there's a reason there's not a lot of mid-sized airlines. Or, you know, there's a lot of things like that, the stuff that favors scale. Last thought, last idea, last thing you want to share. His name's Gary Dennis. He's a, he's a CPA. If you are a rancher or a farmer and you need his services, how do they find you? Pretty simple. Phone number is 918-766-2440. And my email is gary at bluechipalliancepartners.com or garywdennisCPA at gmail.com. Yeah. See, there you go. And then you can find him and maybe talk to him about the beef thing. Last thoughts, closing thoughts, anything you got for me? Appreciate you having me on. It's been exciting to talk about this and I'm looking forward to the future. I'm more of an optimist uh, glass half full for sure. And uh, I look to see that somebody's going to start these small processing facilities, these tier twos, yeah. and it's really going to take off. I see them starting one, and in six years, they have three. And in 10 years, they have eight. And then someone's going to say, well, then you're just like the bigs. I'm like, well, maybe not, because those eight, in my opinion, are going to be spread around eight different geographies because they're going to say there's a scale right here, but it's not uh, on the huge, huge scale, but it's a, the right amount. And I think you're right, because I think it could work. That's why I wanted to have you on here, because – I myself had a bunch of people calling and saying, why aren't there more processing facilities that are maybe just, a, you know, like you said, bigger than the guy down the street, but smaller than uh, the Tyson facility in Sioux Falls? And I said, that's a good question. Why aren't there any? So I think you're right. There's going to be more of these things coming around. And that's not to say there are none. It's just that there's not, certainly the, you and I are out here in the landscape and we don't see it much. So I, I think there's going to be something there. All right, man. His name is Gary Dennis. Uh, you're listening to me, Damian Mason. This is the Business of Agriculture podcast, sponsored by my buddy Nick Horeb with Harvest Profit. HarvestProfit.com is where you can go and read his blogs. You can do a free 14-day trial with his software to see if it will help your agricultural enterprise. But you know what? It will help you. So just get the 14 days for free, then buy it. It'll make your operation more profitable. Also, thank you to my good friends down in Georgia, the Georgia Dairy Farmers and Georgia Milk, reminding you to drink milk. It's good for you. Calcium, what did I tell you a little while ago? One cup of milk versus seven cups of broccoli. <laughs> Throw a little Nestle Quick in that milk, and it's not only got to be calcium, it's going to make you happy because it's chocolate milk. Thanks a lot for being here, Gary. Thank you. Come back again in a couple of years after you've got one of these rolling, yes? Absolutely. That's what we want to hear. All right. Thanks a lot. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the business of agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.